Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Victor Strecker. Victor Strecker is an award-winning pioneer in the field of behavioral science and a professor at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. Nearly 10 years ago, Vic lost his 19-year-old daughter, Julia, to a rare heart disease that resulted from an infant case of chickenpox. He shares with us the intimate details of how Julia died and how this life-changing event challenged every aspect of his personal and professional experience. In fact, it drove him on a quest to pinpoint the potential and the impact of purpose in our lives. In this fascinating conversation, we learn how living with purpose is literally better for your health, what purpose truly is, how to live a life worth living, and what Vic's experience with grieving and remembering his daughter has been like. And finally, we discuss what it really means to lead a good life. Please feel free to share this conversation far and wide. And as always, if you enjoyed this conversation, kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to bring you Victor Strecker. Vic Strecker, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. How about you? All things considered, I think I'm doing all right. I appreciate you asking. Vic, the reason why I wanted to speak with you is because I think you have a remarkable story, a story of a fierce loss, a reckoning, and then a transformation. And I want to get into all that, but I think it's probably important to ask something else to kind of get us started. Vic, how would you describe what it is you do? (laughs) Good question, Bakhtash. Well, I am a behavioral scientist and I'm in a school of public health. So that said, I'm trying to help people change their behaviors, their lifestyles, improve those so that they live longer and live better lives, bottom line. Uh, If you start exploring the substrate of behavior change, it relates to things like motivation, right? And if you start looking at motivation and dig deeper and deeper, probably the most intrinsic motive that we have is our life purpose, why we're here on this planet for this relatively brief time, and what we want to accomplish, what we want on our headstone, what we want people to say about us at our memorial service, what we want our ancestors to say about us. Was he a good ancestor, as Jonas Salk, the famous virologist, used to say, be a good ancestor. So in this bigger existential aspect of our lives, I think that the most fundamental motivator of change is our purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the fact that you're sharing this, especially in the context of the work that you do, because you work at the University of Michigan in the School of Public Health, where a lot of the work that's devoted to the School of Public Health is related to disease and death. Your work in many ways is the exact opposite of that. Oh, thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So help help us understand what that experience is like, actually. Well, it's so funny you bring that up. Almost no one brings that up. I'm interviewed a fair amount. And no one brings up the fact that, you know, that the number one journal in public health is Morbidity and Mortality Weekly. That's the title of it. It's put out by the Centers for Disease Control. And, you know, so our field is by and large, and they may deny it, but they're, you know, this is their action every single day. It's how you prevent disease, and somehow avoid death. 
And I guess, I suppose mm. the promise of that is that we'll all live to be 120 or 150 or, you know, just imagine extending that out further and further into immortality. Let's just take the reductio ad absurdum, we'll all live forever. Well, what would we do if we lived 150 years or if we lived forever? Would we just watch more Kim Kardashian on TV? Wouldn't life kind of become stretched out to the point of it being completely anemic, where we don't really care about anything? I would argue yes. And so, you know, it's funny, Daniel Bernoulli in the 1730s wrote about economic utility. And basically what he is saying is that a dollar isn't a dollar isn't a dollar. If you have $5, every dollar is worth more to you than if you have $10,000, where each dollar is worth less. Makes sense? Somebody on the street asks you for a dollar and you have $10,000, it's easy to give. Harder if you have $5. Well, what if you had 10,000 years of living? That's the promise of public health, that we'll live longer and longer and longer. But they don't talk about living better and better and better. They actually just talk about being free of disease and suffering and death. So just let's just take this thought experiment a little bit further. As you're starting to live longer, maybe you're not thinking about the quality of your life as much. And those people, a society that lived forever, may not care about anything. They may not rebuild bridges. They may not try to fix you in some way if you're hurt, because someday you'll get better. Someday something will happen that will improve you. So they'll put off everything. Mm. Whereas if you live a finite, shorter period of time, you will start living closer to the bone as if every day might be your last. Hmm. And so flipping public health thinking on its head, you would start, you'd stop asking, how long can I live? And you'd start asking, well, Mark Twain once said, I don't care about death. I care a lot about not living. And so how do we help people live bigger lives, lives of purpose, lives that are aligned with our purpose? Uh, how do we think about getting more energy in our lives so that we can have multiple purposes in our lives, purposes at home, purposes at work? And in order to do that, then maybe I'm going to start becoming really motivated to change my health behaviors in new ways. I'm not going to quit smoking so that I can live longer. I'm going to quit smoking so I have more energy so that I can fulfill my purpose. I'm not going to eat well or work out just so I live longer. I'm going to eat well and work out so that I have more energy and vitality to fulfill my daily purpose. Of course, yes. And that's why it's really curious to kind of hear your perspective because in the context of behavioral change, I think it's probably safe to say that people aren't going to change their behaviors knowing that smoking is going to kill them. They actually have to go through either like a major transformational experience or they have to essentially take the positive and realize that there's something else that can be done that'll essentially lead to behavior change, but it's not from a place of fear and negative repercussions, correct? It's so true. Like, why do we smoke in the first place? Why do we eat too much? Why do we drink too much? Why do we take opioids? Because we're stressed because we're scared of things. So what do we do when we scare the hell out of somebody? I mean, we increase that activity in the amygdala, this reptilian part of the brain, and that stimulates this urge to start fixing it, mm. fixing it with booze or fixing it with drugs or fixing it by eating too much, all of those things. So if we start flipping that on its head and saying, maybe we should stop scaring people all the time and 
you know, feeling like we've done our job. No, you haven't done your job. In public health, you haven't done your job if you just scare the crap out of people. Maybe we should flip that around and help that person live for what matters most and help them define and work toward a purpose every day. Yeah, and I think that's why your perspective is so remarkable. And so in terms of finding your purpose, Vic, I'd greatly appreciate you sharing your perspective in terms of how you found your purpose. Would you be willing to share the story of your daughter, Julia? Yeah, of course. So my daughter, Julia, was born healthy. She used to like to say I'm a 10 out of 10. And then uh, I was on a research sabbatical in the Netherlands uh, when she was six months old, and she caught a chickenpox virus out of the blue. We have an older daughter, Rachel, too. And um, this virus, which usually causes a rash and you know a fever for a day or two and goes away, this virus attacked her heart. And that happens very, very rarely, thank goodness, but it did happen to her, unfortunately. And when it attacked her heart, it destroyed her heart, Uh, dilated it to literally twice the size. So it was completely ruined. Imagine like taking a chicken breast and you're pounding it to thin it out. That's what her heart was like. And so completely wrecked. And and when the doctors finally discovered what had happened, they said, she's going to be dead within a couple of months and there is no hope. And I, I remember through my tears, along with my wife saying, is there anything that could be done like a heart transplant? And in the Netherlands, they weren't doing those at the time. They said, no, that wouldn't help and it wouldn't work. You should go home, go home tomorrow and let her die in peace. And so literally the next day we flew home. I remember being on Sabina Airlines in the very back because it's the only seats we could get. And people, it was a smoking section back at that time. And everyone was smoking. And my little daughter, they, they didn't even know whether she'd survive a, a plane trip. And I thought, she's going to die back here. And uh, we made it home and we got into the hospital. And they said, you know, we have a new transplant surgeon from Stanford. She seems, and this is after a bunch of tests, everything seems okay except for her heart. She may be a candidate for a heart transplant. And very few have been done on kids. We also don't know what happens to them. Uh, You know, I was asking, like, does the heart grow with her if she gets one? And they said, well, let's first see if she can get one because half the kids waiting for a heart don't get one. They die before they get one. And then what little data we have, we know that within the first five years, half the kids die if they do get one. If they're lucky enough to get a new heart, half the kids die um, within five years. So you can do the math yourself. It was 0.5 times 0.5 is 0.25. In other words, she had a one in four chance of living to be five years old. And so we had to decide in the first place, should we list her for a heart transplant? And we decided around our kitchen table, what we like to call the gathering place. And we gathered around the table with our family. And it wasn't the typical, you know, how was your day sort of thing. It was more like, should we, you know, try to give our daughter Julia a life? Hmm. And we decided that if we could give her a, quote, big life, and we didn't even know what big life meant. If we could give her a big life, even if she died when she was three, if she died when she was 13, if she died when she was 300, if we could give her a big life, that would be it'd be worth listing her. And then we started asking this existential question, well, what, what do we mean by big life? What is that? Hmm. And we decided that if she was connected with friends, if she is connected with family, if she loved other people, if she was loved, and if she had some direction and goals in her life that she could autonomously create, 
then that's mm. a, worth, a life worth living. Mm. She became the first child in the southeastern part of the United States to get a new heart. Oddly enough, it was on Valentine's Day. And when she got this, it's almost like she got a brain transplant. She had more energy, and it was wonderful. And our lives turned into technicolor. It was black and white before. Even before we had her as a child, um, our lives were more or less black and white. I was trying to get tenure and, you know, the standard professorial sort of thing and doing as much research as I could, publishing as much as I could, teaching, that sort of thing. The standard stuff, thinking, oh, great, I'll get tenure and then I'll play more golf. And then... My life changed a lot when she had this transplant. I realized that every day might be her last day. And in living her life as if every day might be her last day, our lives changed. We started living our lives as if every day might be our last day. Remember, I, I talked about Daniel Bernoulli. When you have a smaller amount of money, every dollar becomes more valuable. When you, have, when you realize that you're on this planet for a brief and precarious amount of years, very, very brief time, you start living your life bigger. You don't just sleepwalk through life, as Lucretius said in The Nature of Things 2,000 years ago. Mm. Um, you start living life as if it may go away at some point in time, and maybe today. And in fact, it turns out that's what the Stoics thought. Stoic philosophy includes this practice of waking up in the morning and assuming you'll die mm. um, that day. Can you imagine that? I mean, Marcus Aurelius wrote this fabulous short book called Meditations. And in this, he talks about every day he'd wake up and assume he would die. Seneca did the same thing, another famous Stoic philosopher. Others did as well. Epictetus did. And that practice leads you to live a bigger life that day. And it's mm. not that you live a make-a-wish life. I'm going to go to Disney World every day and you know meet Cameron Diaz. It's more like you just say, I'm going to live this big life and mm. just live life to the fullest. Drink everything mm. there is from that glass, if at all possible. And... That made my life, not just her life, much, much bigger and better mm. and richer and more fun and happier. But it wasn't mm. happiness for happiness sake. I wasn't striving for happiness. I found that striving, living as if every day might be my last was important. Oh, that's an interesting place to live day in and day out. But then something changed with Julia. Something happened and um, that changed the course of her life and, and your life. Sure. Yeah. She had a big life and she needed a second heart transplant. It turns out no one knew this when she got her first one, that these hearts tend to have a shelf life. Mm. And, you know, between her drugs and everything, she needed another heart at nine. She almost died then, but she she survived and got a new heart. And then when she, she was uh, 17, she decided she wanted to become a nurse. She wanted mm. to give back. Because she said, of all the people who really I felt supported by, it was the nurses. So I want to go to nursing school. That was great. So she went to the University of Michigan School of Nursing. And she she was not feeling great all the time. She had a lot of migraines, a lot, a lot of problems from the drugs she was taking, uh, low energy. But she worked really, really hard. And uh, by spring break, we decided we're going to take her and her boyfriend and our older daughter and her boyfriend to the Caribbean and warm up a little bit. And your listeners might be going, what? You just brought her boyfriend? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, we lived every day as if it might be her last. And so we tried to give her the kind of experiences as if she might go, you know, the experiences of love and connection with other people. And she was 
deeply, madly in love for quite for a number of years with this guy. So anyway, um, brought them down. And we are all eating at the gathering place, but on the beach in the Caribbean. And we were talking about how grateful we were to be in this warm weather. And we all took a long walk on the beach. And her last words to her boyfriend were, I'm so happy that I could die now. And I don't think she knew she was going to die, but she never woke up. She died of a massive heart attack in the middle of the night. And uh, so anyway, um, when that happened, I kind of lost my purpose. She was 19 years old. That was 10 years ago, 2010. And uh, when that happened, I kind of lost my purpose. And my wife and I went to a counselor, grief counselor, who is also a marriage counselor, which is great. And I went in and I had all these stats because I'm in public health. I'm a stat guy. And I said, look, I heard that 80% of uh, families break up over the loss of a child. And she kind of chuckled a little bit. I said, why are you laughing? She said, well, because 50% of couples break up anyway. (laughs) I said, oh, yeah, you're kind of right about that. So yeah, a lot of people break up. And she said, but here's the deal. If you start judging how the other person grieves, you'll break up. If you start saying, oh, you're grieving, you know, too long or, or, you know, too hard on this or not enough, you'll break up. So don't judge. Let each person go on their own path and support that path. Those are the wisest words we heard going through our grieving process. So my wife, who's a sculptor and a gardener, did more sculpting and gardening. I went to northern Michigan and I started eating and drinking myself to death. But Mm. I also, somebody sent me Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And another person sent me a book by Rumi of ancient poetry by the Persian poet from the, I believe, the 12th century, Rumi. I had this massive dream one night that included Julia. And the night before, I just read this poem by Rumi. It said, the breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is open and round. Don't go back to sleep. I had just this massive dream with Julia in it. And it was one of these hyper vivid dreams. And I wrote it up in this graphic novel I wrote called On Purpose. And I wanted to go back to sleep so that I could see her again and and talk to her and ask how she's doing. And it was about five in the morning. And I just remembered the Rumi poem I had read the night before about not going back to sleep. And I got up and it was still dark. And I looked out though, and I could hear, I was right on Lake Michigan, which usually has thunderous waves. There are no waves. I could tell just by the sound that it was glassy smooth. I got up, jumped in my kayak. It was about 45 degrees outside. I had boxers and t-shirt on. This is 10 years ago. I jumped in, it's still spring jumped in and uh, started paddling out into the water as far as I could. I just kept going further and further and further. And I just thought, wow, the water is so perfect and so smooth. It's cold, but I don't even care. And I was about two miles out and I was starting to think, wow, this is so beautiful. It's just still kind of, it's, it's like a little foggy, but it's just starting to get a little light. Maybe I'll just keep going to Wisconsin, which is 86 more miles. 
And of course, I never would have made it. But it was so beautiful, I thought, what an experience that would be just to keep going. And suddenly the sun came up. And when the sun came up, all of these speckles of light started shining around me. And it started like the, all the water just started glowing around me with these golden sparkles everywhere, just brilliant sparkles. The sun came up just with such vigor. I couldn't believe it. I'd never experienced that. And as the sun was coming up, I felt my daughter in me. And I'm a scientist. I don't know how to explain this, and I'm not going to try other than to say, I felt my daughter in me saying to me, you need to get over this, Dad. And it wasn't like, you need to get over this. It was like, you need to get over your ego. You need to start thinking about other things other than yourself. That was the message. And I felt it really loud and clear from her, really loud and clear. And the sun was coming up. And I, it was almost like there was a sign that had a crossroads on the sign. And one sign said, keep going to Wisconsin and die. So there's death or go back. But if you go back, you're going to have to change your life. And the University of Michigan was so kind. They'd said, hey, you lost your daughter. That's like one of the worst things that can happen to you. And you don't have to teach this semester. You don't have to teach next semester. Take, take off what you need, which is so kind. But it turned out to be horrible advice. What I needed to do is actually teach. And so I started, when I got back, I started writing down the things that mattered most to me. It was an odd thing. I thought, I'm a behavioral scientist. If I can't fix myself right now at this moment, what what good am I? I'm going to look down on myself as if I'm my own patient, and I'm going to fix myself. And I said, the first thing to fix in me is to start by trying to repurpose my life. And to do that, I'm going to start by writing down the things that matter most. And, you know, of course, my family and everybody in my family, our older daughter, who's doing great. And everybody else, I wrote down the, the, you know, my family and friends who mattered most. But at work, I said, my research matters most, and especially my, my students matter most. So in forming a purpose around that, and all a purpose means is that it's a goal or set of goals around the things that matter most. So I said, I'm going to set a goal around the fact that I care a lot about my students. They matter. So I'm going to teach every student as if they're my own daughter, Julia. And so that became a purpose. Oh, that's remarkable. I appreciate you sharing the details of your story. Now, is it true that this happened on Father's Day? Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> it did. I didn't even know it was Father's Day until like later that morning. I'd literally gone through this whole exercise, this whole thing. And then I, I looked and went, oh, my God, it's Father's Day. This is Julia's Father's Day gift to me. Hmm. That's really curious. Wow. And so, Vic, would it be okay to talk about this idea and your feeling of grief? They say the worst kind of loss is for when a parent loses their child because they they live with heartache for the rest of their lives. So could you talk about what that grieving process was like for you? Could you describe it? It's physical. It literally is physical. It gets down, I believe, to your DNA level. Um to this epigenetic level where your genes are expressing differently. It's so fundamental. It's so deep. And you wonder, will this ever go away? That's <laughs> the first thing. Like after a week or so, I, you know, asked a friend who had lost somebody, you know, when does this go away? And he said, oh gosh, <laughs> you know, you're just starting. No, no, it can't be this bad. 
you know, it can't continue being this horrible because I cannot survive this. And, uh, and that's true. I mean, you do go through that. But I'll tell you, at the same time, the best metaphor for grieving that I discovered is when a person said, it's like if you're a tree on a hillside and suddenly a boulder goes down and smashes into the tree just smashes it to bits. And that tree, though, is still alive and it's all gnarly and it's growing in new ways and there are bigger, thicker parts that are stronger than ever and there are other parts that have been removed and that's you. Um, in fact, the, the boulder is stuck in you still and it's just staying there and you're growing around that boulder. And, but that tree is alive and it's in some ways stronger and more interesting than a regular standalone tree that's never had any experience of a boulder smashing into it. And I honestly feel that's the best metaphor for my life. I don't feel um, like I would wish this experience on anyone. On the other hand, I hope that people understand if something bad happens, and it will, but you know, that's life, bad things happen to us, um, that it's not the end of the world, that it's a time where you can experience growth, where you can discover strengths that you didn't know you had before. You can get stronger in areas that you didn't think you'd ever get stronger in. You might form compassion and kindness and an empathy toward people who could really use your experience. And you might discover new paths in your life and new things that you value. And that's all about purpose. Yeah, it's really interesting, this this reckoning of your ego and this reckoning of this world that you've created really is a way, whether you like it or not, to start over. And it's a reminder that we actually don't have control over the things that we think we have control over. Now that it's been almost 10 years since Julia's passing, how has your relationship with Julia evolved? And I guess what I'm trying to say is, how do you carry her with you? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm all that normal in this. I'm so grateful that I've been able to speak to over 100,000 people from around the world over these 10 years in hundreds and hundreds of talks and presentations to people in all walks of life. And in every one of those talks, someone comes up after saying, I just lost somebody. I lost my husband. I lost my wife. I lost my child. I lost my father. I lost my dog. Whatever. People come up and they grieve because they care deeply about something and somebody. So every time I give talks like this, it is a bit like ripping the Band-Aid off the scab. And... I'm okay with that. I really am. I don't mind ripping that scab open and experiencing this, crying a bit again, thinking more about her again, because that's my purpose. It is my purpose to help other people find greater purpose. And if it's finding purpose through suffering, if it's after, you mentioned ego, if, if your ego is, which is to me like a castle wall, if somehow that breaks open, I think you see more clearly. I think you can see things in a new and maybe a clearer way. You become a little less defensive, I think. You're open and you're willing to make changes in your life because you have nothing anymore. You know, alcoholics will talk about that. Drug addicts will talk about that when they hit bottom. There's another way I believe you can get around your ego, and that's to transcend that castle wall, to rise above it. 
And in other words, you don't have, I don't believe you have to lose a child in order to start seeing more clearly. And that's been my purpose and goal for people, whether they've lost, had gone through a heavy loss and transformation that way. Can you transform by transcendence? Can you start seeing things bigger than yourself, rise above yourself? And that concept of self-transcendence is something I've been studying with colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania using neuroscience. It's really been a wonderful journey. You know, I'm really struck with Julia's last dying words. I'm so happy I could die right now. How do you, in your own mind, how do you make sense of it? How do you give meaning to that? I'm so grateful for it. Imagine you being able to live your life and the last thing you're able to say is, I'm so happy I could die now. I don't believe she thought she was going to die. I mean, no one knows. Maybe she felt something odd. That's, you know, but she had just had a checkup and the doctor said, we, she seems fine to go on a vacation. She it seems like she's okay. So cool. She wasn't, obviously. And uh, I'm just so grateful that her boyfriend conveyed those words to us. Hmm. Now, as a family, how do you, how do you, as one, remember her? (laughs) Well, I remember her every day. She is in my heart, and I don't really ever want to forget her. So I don't want to try to forget her. I don't want to take any drugs that help me forget her. I'd never take any sort of electroshock therapy or anything to forget her. Uh, I don't want to. It's almost the opposite. I want to embrace her every day if I can. And the, the day I forget her will be the day my love leaves for her. And I don't want to do that. There's no reason. I meditate every day. And I've been a meditator for over 35 years. And this is a strange thing. I was in northern India, um, and I was talking to this guru, which just means teacher up there. And I said, when I meditate, I see her eye, just one eye. And it's blinking. It literally is very alive. And I said, can I go through that? Can I pass through that and find her? And he said, I want to be honest, Vic. She's in you. She is definitely a part of you. But she's not there to to go and see. She's far gone. It's interesting. Hearing you say this, this feeling comes to my mind where to grieve actually means to love. Yes. Oh, wow. Wow. To grieve means to love and, 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 and to remember. There's this idea of the experiencing self and the remembering self. And so in the context of memory, the ones that we love if they don't hold that space within our minds of how we lived with them, it's almost as though in the forgetting of them, we've lost the love for them. And so in order to keep them alive, in order to keep the love for them alive, we have to kind of continue to remember them. Yeah. And I'm fine about that. Totally fine. And I don't mind, you know, in in the beginning of this new online course that I built with Coursera, the very first piece I talk about my daughter and it's, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody with that. I'm just trying to say, this is where I'm coming from. As I talk about purpose, it's not that I'm the most evolved human. I can promise you that. And it's not that I'm always teaching every student as if they're my own daughter. 
I'm not a perfect person, but I do have aspirations. I have goals that I've set, and we don't always hit our goals. A purpose doesn't mean that it's something you should feel bad about if you don't do it. It's almost like swimming underwater, and you know, you could say, I'm going to swim as far as I can, or I'm going to touch the other side of that 50-meter pool. You may not make it to touch that other side, but you've set a goal for yourself, and you're going to swim farther and achieve more greater performance if you're able to actually set that as a goal. And that's all a purpose is. It's a goal or set of goals around the things that matter most. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so I'm just really thinking in the context of loss and how one has to essentially commit to a recalibration of one's life when a fierce loss like this occurs. In Julia's words, you have to essentially get over it, right? How did you go from this place of being stuck in your mind and then stepping out and serving others, right? In this context of going from the internal state to the external state, how did this transcendence occur? I I had to start thinking about things beyond myself. And I started, I mean, that process started moving me away from feeling sorry about myself um, and focusing on myself, which led to drinking, which led to you know, eating too much led to watching too much TV, just self-indulgence. That's all. You know, I lost my daughter. I deserve all those things to, wow, it's time to start helping other people who are going through things that are similar to this. Viktor Frankl did that. Many other people have done that. And I can grow from this experience. Is that answering your question? I'm not sure it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's this idea of, you know, many people who've been in dark places and who have found the light they were in dark places because they fell into themselves. They've almost, yeah. in many ways, this idea of self-destruction comes from a feeling of not being able to look outside of oneself. And the moment yeah. that the light sh- starts to show up for them, and this may resonate with you, is the light shows up when you actually take yourself out of yourself and you actually live a life of service. You live a life for others Yeah. You know, Aristotle defined two forms of well-being. One was hedonic well-being, and the other was what he called eudaimonic well-being. And that root word in eudaimonia is daemon, which is Greek for your true or godlike self. In Hinduism, they would call that the Atman, this true God that you're born with. And so the Greeks would try to be in touch with that. They used to say Socrates was like in touch with his inner daemon more than anyone else. He would go back and consult his daemon, kind of a street philosopher. He'd go back into an alley and consult his daemon, come out, and they'd go, wow, that's amazing. You're so eudaimonic. And the difference, like Aristotle said, it's okay to have hedonism too, to focus on pleasure on good food, good wine, good sex, good uh, vacations, nice car, whatever. He said, that's all part of us. We like pleasure. But if that's all we are, then we're like, quote, grazing animals. He wrote this in Nicomachean Ethics. We're like grazing animals. He said, and, and we all like to graze. I know that. But at the same time, we have to start thinking about being in touch with our inner God, our true self, which is giving. It's in service. And now, this is interesting during COVID-19 in particular, 
there have been four studies looking at more eudaimonically well people versus more hedonically well people. And it turns out that people who are more eudaimonically well, who are more self-transcending, have greater gene expression of antibodies. They have greater gene expression of type 1 interferon. Those two things come in handy in a pandemic. Those two things are kind of the building blocks of immune function. They also have less pro-inflammatory cytokine production. You might have heard of this term, cytokine storm. That hits people who, some people who are affected by COVID-19, they get a cytokine storm, they go on a respirator or in a hospital and often die. Well, people with a eudaimonic sense of well-being have fewer pro-inflammatory cells produced. Now, these are the building blocks of a very strong immune system. And the one thing we know about COVID-19, the one real true fact is that some people get few or no symptoms. They might get a cough or two or even no symptoms and other people die from it. The one thing we know about COVID-19 is that resilience is incredibly important. And the media loves to talk about exposure all the time. They talk very rarely about resilience other than kind of fluffy wellness kinds of areas. But the science of it is very strong. People with a strong purpose have greater resilience. Now, we haven't run a randomized trial saying, okay, let's have people become purposeful and another group not, and let's expose them both to COVID-19 and who, who lives and who dies. We don't have that trial. But I would say that thinking about a self-transcending purpose could not hurt, and it would sure make you feel better. Yeah. You know, the thought that comes to mind as you're explaining this is human beings can endure anyhow as long as they have the right why. The Nietzsche quote, yes, he who has a why can bear almost any how. And, you know, I like to think about, you know, when people come to me and say, well, I want to lose 15 pounds or I want to do that. I want to quit smoking. I want to manage my stress. I have 15 ways of doing that. You know, there are a lot of ways to lose weight. There are a lot of ways to manage your stress or a lot of ways to, you know, there are 200 forms of meditation, for example, a lot of ways to eat better. I get all of that and I can help that person very quickly with the how. But the first question I usually ask is, why do you want to lose 15 pounds? And at first they're going, well, because I just want to be lighter. Well, why do you want to do that? I want to fit into a new dress size. Well, why do you want to fit in a new dress size? And maybe a tear wells up in their eye and they go, because I'm lonely and I want to feel more attractive and hopefully meet a new partner so that I'm less lonely. Now we can start working. Once I have the why, we can deal with any how. And what I find almost invariably in those people is that they change their behaviors more and they change them for the long term. You don't see the standard relapse curves of people changing and then going back. You see people changing for the long run because they have that why. Oh, that's remarkable. So in the context of service to others and wrapping up this incredible conversation, could you tell us what you're working on and uh, any other last comments that you may have before you go off and continue to fulfill your sense of purpose? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Right now, you know, I've written a few books about this, one called On Purpose, which is a graphic novel. It's kind of crazy, but really a fun book. And then a, a book, as my editor at Harper One said, has words in it. And so that's called Life on Purpose. And that's been really fun to do. But just recently, and this took as much work as a book, um, I created a massive open online course. It's free through Coursera. And Coursera is like the world's largest 
MOOC, Massive Open Online Course Developer, and they work closely with the University of Michigan, and the U of M asked me if I would develop a course about purpose. I said, I'd love to. So this course has just been out a couple of weeks now, and already it has 32,000 enrollees from around the world. I just last week had a question and answer, a Q&A to my class, quote, class of 32,000 people. This is wild for a professor to have 32,000 students in their class. And we decided to do a loving kindness meditation. So we had over 10,000 people in this loving kindness meditation from around the world expressing compassion, not only to the people we love, but also to strangers and even, and very importantly, people we don't like. So expressing kindness, expressing compassion to others, even those that we don't like, helps us heal. It helps us just as much as it might help other people. So living with anger, living with uh, frustration, uh, with aggression is incredibly bad for your health. So this is another thing. Public health doesn't pay a lot of attention to this. Um, You know, they're so used to being angry at this institution or that institution, we totally get that. And that makes sense. But at the same time, if we understood that that kind of anger and frustration can also harm us, and that we have to do this through loving kindness, through compassion, through understanding of where other people are, we live in such bubbles more than ever nowadays that we just think this other group is just evil, which I don't believe is true. I just simply don't believe is true. They're not stupid. They're not evil. They have different experiences than us. Understanding and being compassionate about those experiences is the first way to heal yourself as well as the world. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi and theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.